I was once uh, in a parking lot in New York and there were some Jewish guys there, religious guys. And I, you know, somehow we were talking, I was waiting for our cars. And I mentioned I work for the Simon Wiesel Center. They basically like started joking. Also like, oh, they can chase the guys in wheelchairs. Like when, when are you, you know, like kind of give up. And I said, so look, I hear what you say. And I said, but you know, if someone touches the hair on a Jew's head, I want them to know that they, you know, that we'll chase them down until they die. This is the Anatomy of a Jewish Leader, a show of meaningful conversations with Jewish leaders that delves not only into their minds, but into their hearts. I'm Jonathan Frieden, and that voice that you heard in the beginning was Rabbi Stephen Berg. He was the International Director of NCSY, and then the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and now stands as the CEO of Eshat Torah. I hope that you enjoy this conversation and find it just as insightful as I did. Thank you so much for coming. It's genuinely an honor to be able to have you. Um, Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Okay. So just like to start off before we jump into everything, it's been like really great to follow you on social media. And one of the things that I always, that makes me so jealous, I get to see the view that you have of the Kotel from Yushalayim that you always post. Yeah. Um, potentially the best view in the world. Do you ever like get normalized to it? You know, it, it, it's an amazing thing. You know, people walk in your office uh, and sometimes, you know, you're in the middle of, you, I work there. So you forget about, and they, they walk in and you're talking to someone. All of a sudden they're just staring over your shoulder out the window. You know, and you're like, what? Oh, right. Would you, would you like to come up? You know? So uh, yeah, that happens a lot. It, it, it's pretty amazing. It's um, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just, it, it, it's, it's breathtaking, really breathtaking. That's unbelievable. I can only imagine getting to to see that every day. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So just let's let's start off. I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your childhood before jumping into all the leadership up stuff. So where were you raised? Do you have siblings? What was that like for you? Oh, childhood. Wow. That's, we're, uh, we're going all the way back. Going all the way back. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn in Flatbush. Um, you know, it was very, very different back then. Uh, I have two siblings, brother and sister. One uh, brother lives in uh, Cedarhurst. The sister lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Um, you know, went to MTA for high school. Uh, went two years to Israel to Sharm uh, Saret. Um, went to YU, got my smicha, my graduate degree from Revel in medieval Jewish history. Um, and, and and basically kind of uh, launched my NCSY career from there. I don't know. Should I switch gears to... to no, no for sure. Like, we could we could jump into some of those things that you just mentioned. So I know you mentioned you you got your smicha through Yeshiva University. Now, like I, I know that it's very different now than than how it was before. And now there's so many extra courses that they're having, whether it's in counseling or things like that. Do you think that like smicha prepared you for all the different roles that you ended up having in the Jewish world? So that's that's, that's an ironic question. I'll I'll explain why. I'll give you two pieces of that. Number one is uh, when I did smicha. So your third year, you would do an apprenticeship. Basically, you know, you would figure out which part. You know, they had a pulpit, they had education, and they had chaplaincy, and you would figure out what you want to do, and they would they would place you. And when I went in there, they said, you know, well, you know, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work for NCSY. I'd been at that point volunteering for a number of years at NCSY. I, you know, I wanted to be a regional director in the NCSY, and I will never forget this. You know, the, the person who was doing the placement looked at me and he said. Well, you're a square peg in a round hole. We don't really have anything, uh, <laughs> you know, in formal education. Uh, so they placed me in a uh, home for the elderly, where I would uh, I would go every Friday, do a, sh- a Shabbos service. So yeah, no, they didn't exactly prepare me as they do today for those pieces. 
Um, you know, the flip side of that also is, you know, I, ironically, I got my master's in medieval Jewish history, which which seemed like a you know great idea at the time. I enjoy the courses, but to be quite frank and honest, I've actually in my career I've mostly dealt with a lot of the business end. You know, so in retrospect, you know, I, I did continue education at Harvard Business School and Kellogg and other places, but you know, going 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 way back when, I probably would have been better off some some more business experience before I uh, I jumped into uh, to Klaus. For sure. I, I can only imagine. But yeah, it's like fascinating to hear how much the Simicha program has also changed over time. Um, okay, so you started off at NCSY. You started off as a program coordinator, I believe, for Central East before moving to regional director of West Coast and ultimately becoming the international director, servicing over 35,000 teens. You were the youngest international director of NCSY, which, by the way, is incredibly impressive. Um, were there ever moments where you kind of stopped and were just like, I am in way over my head right now. Oh, yeah, constantly. Meaning I, there were two things. One is every job I got, uh, I was probably too young for. And secondly, most of the jobs I took were jobs that no one else would take. Um, and that's how I built my career. <laughs> uh, there were just these different disasters. And, and you know, I've always viewed myself as like, you know, like the fireman running towards the fire while everyone else is running the other way. Um, so most of my jobs were basically restructuring jobs. Most of my jobs were taking things that people said, like, that's just a disaster that can't work. And to me, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, number one is I'm not really up against anyone else for those jobs. So that makes the process a lot easier. Uh, and secondly, um, it gave me a sense for a lot of times the problems, it wasn't personality based, which really is what happens in a lot of organizations to get into personality conflicts and other stuff like that. They were more structural. Like people didn't really know what they were supposed to do. They didn't really know how they were going to do it. They didn't know all those pieces. So, you know, if you kind of just uh, go into something and take take a good hard look and say, well, okay, well, what do we need to be successful? You know, well, if we just, you know, NCSY is a perfect example. You know, the, the, when we came into NCSY um, uh, on the international um, office. So, you know, one of the things that I focused on was, was uh, metrics and measurements, right? Which means metrics are, how do I know if I'm doing a good job or not? No one really knew that. You know, they would, you know, you say, well, how was the Shabbat time? Well, it was great. It was geschmack. It was, uh, it was, you know, everything's very emotional response. No one really knew, A, what they were supposed to do, and B, if they were really doing it. Um, so those are the metrics. But then we realized, wait a minute, we don't really have a way of measuring anything, right? So we're telling people to go out and do this stuff. We don't really know what they're doing. And, you know, as a result of that, we wound up, you know, building the NCSY database, um, which is the whole story unto itself. Um, and then once we had the database and we could basically know what was going on, we could tell people what we wanted them to do. And then everyone was a lot happier, even though it seems more cumbersome. In the end, you're more excited because you know what's expected of you. For sure. You know, one of the things that was always an interesting question for me, and I'm curious for your take on this, is how do you feel that you're, you ba the balance between kind of data-driven work with balancing with that with a more like on the individualistic level, especially for things such as mm -hmm. NCSY, which are really seemingly based in connection? So when I was, uh, that is... The, that was an excellent question. That is that is the question that, that really needs to be asked. Um, I, I once um, had some infrastructure meetings when I ran West Coast NCSY. You know, West Coast ran San Diego up to Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, out to El Paso, Texas. It was a pretty, pretty good. Uh, That's a lot of space. Left third of the of, of North America, and um, we ran some infrastructure meetings. I'll never forget this. And what I did was I, I split up the uh, the program people. To the administrative people, I said, "Okay, administrative people, you go in that room, and you, I want you to think about how you can help the program people. And program people, I want you to think about, you know, what you can do, you know, be successful, etc." And uh, I'll never forget, you know, I walk into the administrative room, and you know, everyone's sitting, 
everyone has a pad of paper and a pen and, you know, they're taking notes and one person has identified themselves as a leader and it's a very constructive conversation, how they can help the other folks out. I go in the other room and it's like literally like paper airplanes and like almost like a food, you know, like total bedlam, you know? And that's, you know, when you realize that on, on the one hand, the structure on the other hand, um, you know, you need people to, to not lose their personality. You need them to be who they are. You need them to, to get the things done. Uh, but by being who they are, there's certain things they can't do. Well, if I can get the folks in the other room to just take stuff off, off the, the creative folks plate, well, then that's just going to make them even better. And that's what I think a lot of people miss is that they expect the same person to do everything. And that's a big mistake. People have strengths and they have weaknesses. And if you play to their strengths, then they can do great things. For sure. Yeah. I think that that's, that's often so looked over that like there could be the people that are just doing very different things. And it's not one or the other. Um, you did so many incredible and really, really important things during your time at NCSY, two of them being really setting up TJJ, which is the Israel summer trips for public school teens and JSU, uh, which were the Jewish clubs in public schools, where the goal there was really just do something Jewish. And it was really like the first thing of its kind. And it, like I said, became so incredibly successful and impacted so many people. What did you have in mind uh, as your main goal for what teens should be getting out of those programs? Like what really pushed you to start those programs? Yeah. So there are two different things. I'll talk about TJ and then I'll, I'll talk about uh, JSU. You know, in TJJ, no one had ever run an all public school program. Uh, we had never been in the history of NCSY. You know, there were different programs. It was called ISS, ISE. There were like mixed public school kids, yeshiva kids. No one had ever really run it before. And um, I was there with my partner, Barry Goldfisher, who's just absolutely terrific. One of the, one of the best partners I ever had in my life. And uh, Barry and I, we got there. We had 40 kids. We gave us a bus. And I will never forget Erev Shabbos, the first Shabbos, sitting around going, we have absolutely no idea what we're doing. Like, do we run a Shabbaton? Do we not? Like, we just, we had no one, no one had ever done it. And over the course of the summer, we basically, you know, we came up with, you know, we want everyone to grow. But like, what does that mean, grow? Like, what is that like? You know, it's very hard. So we, we basically coined the term tangible growth. We would like kids to get to the end of the summer and just do something more than they were doing before. And, you know, we had, um, you know, kids from that summer that switched to yeshiva. We had kids that, you know, would bench, would dive, like whatever it was, we wanted people to, to, to rise up. So, you know, for TJJ, it was simple. It was just, it was the best, we had to make it the best tour out there, the most fun, the most incredible. Um, I think we had a sense that a lot of the other tours um, that were going on did not have the staff we had. And so if we were to put seven or eight collegiates on each bus, it would just make it more fun. And that's what set us aside from perhaps some of the other tours. Um, and that coupled with this type of growth that there was like a, you know, you wanted to come away with, with that you had really gained something, I think, you know, created um, what TJJ has become a, a massive, you know, a really serious uh, program. And a lot of certain people have come through. So I think that was it. It was just, you know, the combination of fun, but also content and making sure, you know, that, that the content was also fun, you know? Uh, so I think that was TJJ. That's why it became, you know, phenomenally successful. JSU was, was, was really fascinating because, we didn't invent JSU, you know, is, is public school programs. We go into public school and, and during lunch and stuff, we didn't invent them at all. I mean, they had existed all over the place with different names. What we did was we took them over in LA um, and we created these programs and we just coined this term Jewish student union, JSU. So we said, okay, everywhere across the country, we're going to call JSU. So instead of having five programs in LA, five programs in Long Island, five programs, you know, it's all the same program. There are a couple hundred. That was number one. Number two is, and, and this is an interesting story. Um, I went to a federation to talk to them about um, about what we were trying to do at JSU. And it was really interesting. I brought one of our club presidents 
And, you know, so two, two interesting things happened that meeting. Number one is they said to her, well, how many of them are affiliated? And she's like, I, I don't really know what you mean by affiliated. Right. So they said, well, how many of them have been to synagogue or temple on Yom Kippur? Right. And so out of, let's say, 100 kids in that club, she's like, out of 100, you know, I don't know, six or seven. So that was like, I, I was even blown away by that, just to realize that, that number. And the other piece was, and this was, was really interesting, and, you know, I know this podcast on leadership is important to remember, you know, they were like, well, what's your methodology? What's your, you know, I said, well, you know, we go in during lunchtime, uh, we bring a lot of kosher pizza and hungry kids <laughs> eat, and we discuss Judaism. <laughs> They're like, that's brilliant, you know, and, and I think it was just, People overthink things, and that's what we did. We just took a very basic concept that we had the right to go into these public schools. The Supreme Court had, had basically, and there were a huge amount of Christian clubs. We're going to go talk to the Jewish kids about Judaism and see what comes out of it. And I think sometimes when you overthink these things, they get complicated, but I, I don't think it was so complicated. And thank God now there's, there's hundreds of clubs around the country. Yeah, I mean, that's really, inc- I, didn't even, I didn't even realize that it was reaching so many students which had no previous affiliation to Judaism. Like six out of a hundred, those numbers are really crazy. Um, I'm sure so much of the success of these programs, as well as so much of your career as a whole, is tied to the ability of making and maintaining connections. What have you found to be most instrumental in building these connections and relationships? I think relationships with 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 who, with just general donors, people, partners, other. Yeah, I, I'm curious also if you think that there is a difference. Like, do you feel that the connections that you've built, perhaps with you know, students, while you started off working, I guess, more as a program coordinator before moving into the higher up positions, but whether it's with kind of students, whether it's with staff, whether it's with donors, what have you found this just, has there been anything which is fundamentally really important in those relationships? Yeah. Look, the most important thing is you have to be real. (laughs) It's just like, you know, you can't be fake. You have to be real. And the truth is, you know, I just say with high school kids, you know, you know, like a, a teenager, when a, a substitute teacher walks into the classroom, and it's like smelling a shark, smelling blood in the water. They know within like three seconds what they can get away with, with that, you know? So it's the same thing. You know, teenagers, they know if you're full of baloney or not. They know if you're like, if you're real. And if you're real, then they'll, they'll respond to that. And, and I think the relationship of your friendships also have to be real. You know, you can't be fake. People, you know, and, and uh, you know, whether it's donors, um, you know, whether it's donors or other Jewish professionals or, you know, I, you know, I'm pretty real. I'm pretty straight. You know, what you see is what you get. Like, I'll tell you what I think. Um, you may like it, you may not like it, but I'm, I try to be very straight, very real. I do care about the Jewish people. I don't believe that any one organization is a solution to all the problems of Jewish people. I think that you need many different parts around the community. And I think if you can respect that, if you can respect the fact that it's not, you know, it's competition is not a bad thing necessarily. If you have multiple um, organizations trying to do good stuff, you know, as long as everyone plays nice. Um, I think that people, people understand that and there's a certain amount of respect that grows between you and them. For sure. I, I think that it, like, it sounds so simple, but it's so true of just being real. Um, I'm curious also how that interacts with fundraising, which is one of the things that you mentioned, because I'm sure on the one hand, you know, you really have to try to sell your company or here or your organization, but on the other hand, trying to just be completely honest. Has that ever been hard to kind of balance those two things? Look, I, I think it's hard if you don't necessarily believe in something with all your, your heart and soul. If you really believe with all your heart and soul that this is, that A, you know what the issue is that's facing the Jewish people, and B, you know how this is solving it, then I think you can make a very powerful case. And I think that donors um, are, are, you know, 
Jews that care tremendously about the community. And just like, you know, we're rolling up our sleeves, let's say, um, in a program or in Asia Torah or whatever it is to do whatever we're doing. So the donors are rolling up their sleeves also, you know, and they, they you know, sometimes, you know, they'll play a more bigger role in helping out with stuff. But a lot of times it's by writing a check. And I think that people need to understand that that donor that wrote that check is, is your partner 1000%. And, and just, you know, just like you taught that kid, that donor is if they were sitting next to you teaching that kid or that young adult. Uh, and that's, and I think once you understand that and, and, and the donor knows you're real and, and, and also you have a track record of integrity, meaning you don't, you don't, you know, you, you said you were going to do stuff and you actually did it. That makes a big difference to people. So I think it's track record plus the fact that um, you respect them and their contribution and, 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 you know, you, and, and you're genuine. Oh, incredible. In your, in your farewell address when you were honored, I know it wasn't your main point in the address. I know this is, this is a throwback for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. to bring, I'm going to yeah. bring up some of your lines. Yeah. Um, I left NCSY. How long ago was it? Probably eight years ago. Yeah. It was a long time. Yeah. So I know it wasn't your main point even in your, in your farewell address. You almost mentioned it passively, but one of the things that you mentioned really stuck out to me was you highlighted the difference between an on the ground leader who gets to see the quote unquote, like fruits of their labor. And I guess for you, that was ostensibly when you were a program director versus as like a higher up administrator, you know, when you, you kind of became the international director as you ran so many organizations from a higher level, has it been sometimes challenging to kind of keep sight of the individual great outcomes and the on the ground experiences? For sure it is. I mean, that's, that's, that's what really, that kind of kills you when you lose touch with uh, what's going on. You know, I, I had a, uh, one, one of my favorite people in NCSY when I first took over international director and we were, we had a conflict about something and I will never forget. He called me a 14th floor bureaucrat because the Oof. on the 14th floor, you know, we're, we're super friends and I respect him so, so much. Uh, and we went at it and I think, you know, he, he backed off on his, what he was, was saying, but, but I think there is something to the effect of like, you know, you, you know, you're in the OU, you're on the 14th floor in Manhattan and you're deciding what synagogues across the country or what schools across the country, this is what they need. And so ultimately what you can do is, you know, you'll send them a box of programs that inevitably when you go see the shul is either in the closet sealed or holding open a door sealed. You know, you have to understand what people need and then you have to provide that. You know, I have one of my largest donors who's a very, very close friend of mine. He said to me, he's from the South and he said, you know, that he had an uncle that built homes and he built the homes that he, he really loved and he wanted and he couldn't sell them because he loved them, but the customer didn't. And I think that that's, you know, that's the, the danger to any CEO when you, you lose touch and you forget what the actual person at the end of the line experiences. So you have to make sure that you're in the trenches as much as you can. I'm sure. Yeah. Like kind of keeping sight. Also that line of the, the 14th floor bureaucrat, that's tough. <laughs> that was a, I'm sure that was a tough line. Yeah. Okay, so in 2013, after about 22 years with NCSY, you move on to become the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So for those who don't know, the Simon Wiesenthal, the Simon Wiesenthal Center is a global Jewish human rights organization that confronts anti-Semitism, hate and terrorism, promotes human rights and dignity, stands with Israel, defends the safety of the Jews nationwide, and teaches lessons of the Holocaust for future generations. How did you end up in this role? Like, did you have a person, also, did you have a personal connection to the Holocaust? Or was this just kind of, you were switching to another role in the Jewish community? How did this happen? One of my mentors when I lived in Los Angeles was Rabbi Mayor May, who was executive director of the Wiesenthal Center. And he always told me, whenever you're ready, give me a call. And uh, I gave him a call after 22 years. 
you know, at the OU as a managing director at OU and the national director in Hawaii. Uh, I gave him a call. I said, I think it's time, you know, just curious to, you know, try out some other stuff. Uh, and I went over to the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Um, I respected what they did. Uh, for me, it was, it was a, a fascinating um, experience because for the 22 years on NCSY OU, I really focus on Jewish community. The Wiesenthal Center is so much bigger and they focus on the African-American, LGBT, Latino community, like so many communities that they, that they uh, focus on. So it was very interesting for me to kind of grow. And I did a lot of political lobbying as well um, for all kinds of different programs and things um, in, in a different space than typical Jewish lobbying is. So it was, it was, it was a great experience for me. I'm sure. Have you ever done a Poland trip, by the way? Many, 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 many times. Wow. How, how, how was that for you? Uh, it was good. It was, you know, mostly uh, at NCSY. It was mostly with teens. Um, I went probably, I don't know, a dozen times. Um, towards the end, I was even acting as a tour guide a bunch of times. You know, I, look, I think that there's a very powerful, you know, it's very powerful to go to Poland and then go to Israel. And then you really uh, understand that's why they sent so many officers from the IDF over to Poland to really get perspective for, for why Israel is so important in, in our history. So I think it's, I think it's crucial for people. For sure. And I'm sure one of the things that you had to interact with while you were uh, at the Simon Luis Law Center is the idea of hate. Um, why do you think people are hateful? Like, where do you think that comes from? You know, look, there's, there's different, there's different people in life. There's, there's, you know, there's the people that are living, let live. And then there are people that, you know, the way they can boost themselves up is by, you know, climb a ladder is by stepping on other people down beneath them. And I think for a lot of people, they have issues and problems and it's a lot easier to blame it on someone else than blame it on themselves. And that's what I think hate hate is. It's basically like, no, really, I'm a great guy. And the reason I'm not successful in life or my job or, or money or whatever it is, is because, oh, the Jews control the world. And obviously they must be keeping me down because I'm such a, a great person, you know? So I think that that's, that's a big part of where hate comes and uh, you have to try and fight it as best you can and explain to people that, you know, there, and I met a lot of people that, that, that through the regional center that had, had done spiteful, hateful, anti-Semitic things. And you'd be like, why'd you do that? They're like, oh, I don't know. You know, like, it was never, it was never like really coherent or, you know, you know, it was just, it was just silly and stupid. And once you got to meet them, you know, most of the time, you know, they were like, okay, now that I know a Jew, it's a little different. I'm sure. And, I guess that must be so tough to combat when the hate isn't really a problem at all with the group that's being hated on, but it's just a deficiency in the person who's hateful. And like, how do you kind of fix a hole that's within them? That must be so challenging. Yeah. And look, it's hard for the Jews, especially because, you know, the extreme left and the extreme right, the only thing they have in common is they hate us. You find it on the extreme left, you find extreme right. And it's, it's almost ironic they can't agree on anything except it's a Jew's fault. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's a growth industry, anti-Semitism. And certainly in the last couple of years, I think that that's also because if you look at some of the, the polls in Europe, uh, Europe is basically done feeling sorry about the Holocaust, you know, and I ran the question where the Holocaust ever happened. But uh, in general, in Europe, they're basically done feeling sorry. Like we did it. We felt sorry. We're, we're moving on. And so the anti-Semitism you find that's really hitting new heights today isn't new anti-Semitism. It's kind of the old anti-Semitism that took a break after the Holocaust when people felt bad, like maybe they went too far. And now, boom, it's right back up. Wow. Okay. So one of the things that, of course, Simon Wiesenthal Center did is it, it there's such a stand for tolerance and focus on, quote unquote, the respect for all. Um, but also a big part of the center's standing against anti-Semitism and hate. Simon Wiesenthal was the Nazi hunter. Uh, 
when do you think we should be tolerant and have empathy for others? And at what point should we stand up and perhaps even be a little bit aggressive? That's uh, an excellent question. And, uh, you know, what I admired most about Simon um, in all his years of Nazi hunting and all those pieces was it was absolutely never about revenge for him. It was always about justice. Uh, in fact, he would have a barometer, you know, and, and he would basically some some, you know, Germans, he'd say, well, what they did wasn't really a war crime. He would basically, or they served their time. You know, one of the interesting thing was uh, he had a relationship with Albert Speer, who was the architect uh, of, of the Nazi government at the time. And after he got out of jail, Simon Wiesel actually had a relationship with him. And he basically said he did his time and, you know, and we're, you know we move on because it was about justice. It was never about revenge. So I think if it's, if it's about justice, I think it's a, you know, it's an important piece. I was once uh, in a parking lot in New York and there were some Jewish guys there, religious guys. And I, you know, somehow we were talking, I was waiting for our cars. And I mentioned, I work for the Simon Wiesel Center. They basically like started joking. Also like, oh, they could chase the guys in wheelchairs. Like when, when are you, you know, like I give up. And I said, so look, I hear what you say. And I said, but you know, if someone touches the hair on a Jew's head, I want them to know that they, you know, that we'll chase them down until they die. And I think that that's that type of justice that, if you, you know, if you touch a Jew, what has kept us together for 3,000 years is that we take responsibility for each other. And uh, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And, and, and we have long mem- memories. You know, people are like, you know, when are you, when are you going to you know, forget about the Holocaust? You know, and the answer is, what do you mean? We're still blaming the Babylonians for like, you know, for everything they did. So uh, that's who we are. And, 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 you know, going back to the Bible, we have to defend every single Jew. And, and we will. And, and people need to know that. Yeah. Okay, so in 2015, you ultimately come to Eshat Torah, and you basically become the CEO. And Eshat Torah's mission is to ignite the Jewish passion, empower every Jew to embrace their heritage, thereby ensuring the vibrant community continuity of the Jewish people. How did you end up from the Simon Wiesenthal Center to Esh? That's not as much the question is, why did you take a break in Simon Wiesenthal in between NCSY and Esh? <laughs> That's because fair. the truth is, I spent 22 years in you know, NCSY, and... I spent a couple of years at Wiesenthal, which was great. It was um, it was exciting. I, I loved the work I was doing. But Eshatar came along, and basically, Rav Noach had died a number of years before Rav Noach Weinberg, who was the uh, the charismatic founder of, of Eshatara. And um, things started to crumble, and they had some real, real challenges there. And uh, so they basically approached me at the Wiesenthal Center and said, "Look, you know, you've got the background. Um, you know, we need someone to come in and try and, and kind of rebuild." So for me. In, in many ways, it was the dream job. You know, I love Wiesenthal, but this was, you know, Asia Torah uh, was just kind of coming into their 45 year history discovery seminar that everyone in the planet has, you know, has, has, has knows about has taken and Asia.com. And this is the place where Steven Spielberg and Kirk Douglas were donors and had been there. And, you know, there was just so much, uh, you know, gravitas and, and so much, so many things there. And it's such an important institution that to me, it just, it just, you know, called me, you know, pretty much right away. And I said, okay, look, uh, let's, uh, Let's see what we can figure out. For sure. You have to be in Israel, I'm assuming, all the time. Um, I could tell from from all your incredible Kotel posts. Um, like, how do you balance between being on the flights all the time between Israel and America and seeing your family and not being with your family sometimes? How has that been for you? So it's interesting. Most people don't know where I live because I'm always traveling, but I actually live in, in Burgerfield, New Jersey. And, you know, when I took the job, you know, we have six kids and we made the decision that our kids were in school. We weren't going to pick up and move to Israel at that point. Educationally, it would be harmful to them. Um, and, and secondly, um, I have to travel all the time. So, if we, you know, I have to pick a continent. 
even if I was in Israel, I'd be going back to America all the time. So I just, you know, I stayed there um, and, you know, I started my traveling and, you know, sometimes I go to Israel almost every other week. I'm usually there at least twice a month. Um, but you have to realize that, that we cover um, North America, Latin America, Israel, uh, and then English speaking countries. So it's, it's England, uh, South Africa, and Australia. Um, I've been to South Africa three times in the last five years. Wow. You know, we, we have a big, big turf and I've been to other countries also, but that's, that's really where we mainly, we focus on three languages, English, Spanish, and Hebrews. So that's really where we wind up. So, you know, I, I you know, you, you wind up trying to, you know, if I travel, I have to work 24 seven, if I'm away from my family, otherwise it doesn't really pay to be away from my family, try to be home as many Shabbos as I can, you know, with my family. So if I, if I go to Israel, I'll try to be away only one Shabbos, you know, leave like on Sunday, come back, you know, 10 days later on Friday. And, you know, you try and balance it. You know, I think my kids understand that what I do is important uh, for the Jewish people. Um, and, you know, through Zoom, I mean, I'm, I'm, through Corona, everyone's discovered Zoom. I've been using Zoom for years um, for a lot of those pieces. And and I, more most importantly, perhaps, I have a great team in Israel. I have a great CFO. I have a great, um, I just have executive director. I've, I have great people so that, you know, in the beginning, I had a lot of hard work to do. But now a lot of them can, can really function, uh, don't need day to day as much. One of the things that I saw on the H website that was in the about section that had to do with your mission statement goes as follows. It said, at H, we do not base Jewish values on defensiveness nor on guilt. And that really stood out to me uh, because, of course, we know that Jewish guilt is a known stereotype. H seemingly believes that it shouldn't be at the basis of Jewish values. I'm curious to hear you expound on this and how you believe that one should interact with guilt, where might it or might it not have a place? Yeah, look, we, we believe in, honestly, Jewish wisdom. You know, one of the, the, the most common questions I get asked as I travel is what's the difference between Asian Chabad? You know, those are kind of like the two international organizations. Uh, what I always explain to people is Chabad is much more experiential. They're very much about the mitzvah, they're very much about the mezuzah, tefillin, you know, for Asia, we're much more intellectual. Not to say that Chabad is not intellectual and H is not experiential, but what do we really focus? For us, it's Jewish wisdom. Jewish wisdom is not about guilt. It's about knowledge. We want people to possess knowledge. You know, we have, we've just recently undergone a lot of strategic planning. We have something called H Vision 2030, which in the next 10 years, our goal is to get 3 million Jews studying Torah that are not currently studying Torah. It's 20% of the Jewish population. And our belief is, you know, forget the guilt, forget the other stuff. And, and our, our goal is not even necessarily... Uh, to make those people Shomer Shabbos or Kasher Zeran. We just want them to experience the Almighty's wisdom. You know, our belief is that it, the more immersed they get in, in, in Jewish wisdom and the Almighty's wisdom, then they're going to get closer to them. And that's that's really, that's, that's our focus. You know, it's very interesting because I hear a lot of the time people refer to the work that Aish does as quote-unquote Kirov, um, you know, meaning to bring people close. Do you like the use of that term? Um, I, you know, I don't get caught up in terms as much. I mean, I think when I speak, it's important. I don't get caught up in them as much, you know, you know, some people like for the word engagement and things like that. Look to me, it's, it's, it's almost irrelevant. You know, our goal getting 3 million Jews to study Torah. We're looking for, we're looking for Jews who are not connected. We're not looking for people that are connected to Jewish community. Um, our plan is to do it through social media. You know, we get over a million people at H.com per month. And, uh, we want to branch out now to TikTok and to, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all the different, all the, you know, all the different uh, Instagram, all the different things. Uh, we believe that for the first time in Jewish history, we can actually reach out to every single Jew. And so we actually hired Jamie Geller. I don't know if you know Jamie Geller, who's a huge online presence. Um, 
She basically has 5 million followers, over a billion views. She runs the kosher, kosher network. She does a lot of uh, stuff at Kosher. She's actually our, um, our chief marketing um, uh, and media officer. Uh, CMO is actually our first woman in a, in a high-level executive position at Aish. And um, we're following her lead to basically reach those 3 million Jews and, and to rebrand Torah so people understand. You know, I always quote you know, the song, looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, People are online trying to find love and spirituality, all these things. Well, Torah's got that. We're just not, we're not, you know, marketing it correctly. You know, the Torah doesn't change, but the delivery mechanisms do. And we need to, to get Torah wisdom out there to, uh, to Jews. You make appearances on many news channels. When I got to watch a lot of your interviews and they were, they were really great. I really enjoyed them. Um, and you've ultimately become this really public figure and really just a representative of the Jewish people. You also do not back down from sharing your political opinions, which is awesome. Um, as is often spoken about, though, however, now, like, as I'm sure you know, we're living in this environment of cancel culture. Are you ever afraid that you're going to say or do something that will really come back to harm you in some sense? That's so interesting. <laughs> it's such an interesting question. I just wrote an op-ed about Biden's first 100 days, you know, and what I thought how I thought he could actually uh, do a good job if, if there's certain things I think he needed to do. And uh, a very, very, you know, you talk about Jewish leaders and a very high level uh, Jewish, you know, rabbinical leader basically called me up and said, I don't think rabbis should write things like this, you know? And uh, I said, I, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but um, I think I really need to speak out. And, and to be frank and honest, you know, the, the Iranian deal is an existential threat to, to Jewish lives. You know, there's a there's a guy running a country that threatened to wipe Israel off the map, you know, that thinks the Holocaust is a hoax and, and would like to basically perpetuate another one. So I don't really understand how Jewish leaders don't speak up on that. How do you take a pass on something like that? You know, um, I think we learned our lesson when Hitler, you know, said he wanted to wipe us out. You know, everyone's like, ah, he's, you know, it's rhetoric. It's this, that, you know. I don't know. You know, I, there, there's nothing that I've written over the years that I don't uh, agree with, feel strong about. Um, sometimes people try and use it against me. Um, it's happened many times. I've, there are certain blogs that have, uh, you know, criticized me. Um, but, you know, there's nothing I haven't uh, that I've done that I'm, I'm embarrassed about. And I think that they were important positions to take. And I think that people need a voice out there. And I think it's got to be people that have substance behind it. For sure. And I think that there's so much power and and really courage and ultimately saying like look listen i'm gonna say what i have to say because i think that it's just so important you know one of the things one of the really incredible things that ish does is it trains future leaders you know such as through the hasbara fellowships where students learn to become pro-israel advocates on college campuses i think that there's a lot of talk in the world right now about how everyone should become a leader you know do you really believe that first of all everyone can be a leader and do you think that everyone should be? Yes, I believe every single Jew could be a leader. But let me explain what I mean by that. You know, I think people take leader to this like extreme, like you know, um, uh, extreme example. I, I think that what it what it really means. This is what H believes is heart and, uh, and soul, and this is what I believe as a Jew. Every Jew must take responsibility on themselves. Meaning, if you spot something that needs fixing, you need to fix it. So that makes you leaders. Which means, by the way, in today's day and age, you can have a guy that could barely communicate with another human being. But he's awesome on blogs and on, you know, and all kinds of other great. Go be a leader over there. Meaning God gives every single person uh, strength and your job in life between being born and dying is to figure out what your strengths are and use it to make the world a better place. That makes you a leader. You know, it makes you a leader. Every certainly every single person in the world, Jew in the world 
has potential to be a leader. Not every person becomes a leader, but certainly everyone has potential to be a leader. I feel like every couple of weeks I see you together in a meeting with some sort of incredible and massive either world or Jewish leader. Are there any specifics meetings that really stand out to you as just being incredible? Um, yeah, <laughs> I just get lucky out of the right place, right time. You know, uh, there are two that really, in my mind, stick out. The one was the secretary of treasury, Mnuchin, who came to Aish and, uh, we were hosting for the embassy, like a meeting with him, with all these high tech people in Aish. So he came and they're very like, okay, you're going to walk in. And he has, you know, 10 seconds for a picture. He's got to go to meet them. You know, all that stuff, you know, he, he walks in to take the picture and say hello to him and he spots the view. And he just makes a beeline for our terrace. And he walks out on the balcony and he starts asking us questions. I'm there with Rabbi Etil Golva. And he's literally asking us about the first temple, the second temple, the third. Like we're going through this whole thing for 20 minutes. We're sitting there like learning Torah, right? With the, you know, with the secretary of the treasury, who's a Jewish fellow, right? And it was just this surreal moment where his aides are going crazy, trying to get him into a room with all the like, you know, multimillionaire high tech guys. And he just wants to sit there and understand what happened on that Temple Mount. What does it mean to him as a Jew? So like, to me, that's like, that's it. That's heaven. That's why we, we do what we do, you know? And, and, and so it's not so much taking the picture, picture sake. You want it to be impactful on these people. And you want also, you know, you know, the Jew, just like we are, you know, and, and, and you have to help them, you know, find out who they are. I know that you mentioned before that Rivna Weinberg passed away before you were working at Aish. And of course, you know, to a degree you were brought in because things were getting challenging there and you had to be the classic firefighter. Um, but now as someone who ultimately really runs the organization that Rivna Weinberg was so instrumental in, are there any specific things that maybe you've taken away from him that you think have really impacted your life or outlook? Totally, totally. He was, he was really amazing. I would tell you that both Simon Wiesenthal and Noah Weinberg in my life, having been in their organizations, were very, their philosophy was very, very impactful to me. And I think with Rav Noach, there were, there were two things that stand out to me. Um, number one was uh, his, his visual clarity of God. Meaning if you walk into age, you'll hear everyone talk about God, 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 Almighty, God. You know, the Discovery Seminar was basically to prove God to the world. They just, everyone talks about God constantly. This, this God consciousness, which I think, the, certainly the from world is missing to a certain extent, like day schools and everything. We don't talk about God a lot. Even NCSY, we, we, you know, we didn't talk about God so much. We talk about Shabbos and coach, you know, but in the end of the day, Torah mitzvahs is a means to an end. The end is God. If you don't have God clarity, you know, so I think that for me was very, very impactful from Noah Weinberg. The second thing that was impactful for me was his sense of responsibility. He felt that you have to, you know, we, we, you mentioned Hasbro Fellowships before, Honest Reporting, Jerusalem U, JRP. There's so many organizations that have come out of Asia Torah. And because he he basically said, you have to feel responsible for Jews on a physical and spiritual level. The first um, advocacy group that came out of Sterot, and it's in the book about his life, you know, the fellow, there were bombs falling in Sterot, no one's paying attention, no one cared. They said, go speak to Rav Noah Weinberg. He shows up with Noah Weinberg in his office. He's like, there are bombs falling in Sterot. What do I do? Rav Noach pulls money out of his drawer and says, here's money to buy a car and a video camera. I want you to tell the world. And literally, Rav Noach Weinberg, who's famous for starting a Baal Shuvi Shiva, started the first step. Why? Because it's about responsibility. If something is going on and he's taken care of, you know, we got to take care of it. So I think those are the two pieces that, for me, are very, very impactful with Noach Weinberg.
For sure. And I guess to kind of build off of that for a second, has your perception of Judaism, I guess, changed at all? Through You, you had so many roles, whether it was through NCSY or the Wiesenthal Center or Aish. Do you feel like overall those have caused your perspectives or the way that you interact with Judaism to change? Uh, it, it's definitely grown and changed. Look, I, I, because I come in and, and what I do is I kind of do the restructuring and do all the stuff that, that is, is made sound very difficult. You know, God becomes your best friend because, you know, I have a lot of good friends and stuff, but you're doing a lot of lonely things at the top. Um, so my relationship with God is definitely the number one motivator and mover and has only gotten much, much, much stronger. Uh, many of the things that, that, that I've, I've, many of my successes in life, I would be a fool to say that they had anything to do with me, you know, or a small percentage of me, much bigger percentage of God. Like I've just seen his hand and you're trying to do good things and you're trying to take good organizations and go places. I've, just, I've seen too much Seattle de Shmaya, you know, too much of God's hand to really think for one second that this is just me, you know, doing it. So I would say for sure the, the biggest change from my starting career until here is just God has become much, 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 much more real for me. Wow. You know, one of the things that I guess is, is really often really interesting to me, um, especially when speaking to leaders, I think that the leadership roles in general are inherently could be really lonely and tough experiences. Um, one of the things that, that I always think about is how so often leaders could be really misunderstood. And I'm curious here from your perspective, what do you think has been most misunderstood about your work and perhaps even about you throughout your career? You know, you know, being at the top often means you're misunderstood. You know, first of all, we're Jews. So everyone has an opinion. Uh, you know, it, we're stiff necked people. It's one of the things that makes us successful. And one of the things that makes it very difficult to lead to, you know, to lead. Um, so I think that, that it's almost like a, a byproduct of, you know, for me, the greatest strength I have is, is reading Tanakh. I, I'm a big fan of David and Melech and I read through, you know, Shmuel constantly because as I tell people, you know, King David at the beginning of his life, his father-in-law tried to kill him at the end of his life, his son tried to kill him in the middle of the Plishtim tried to kill him. And he still got a lot done, you know? So I think it's, it's that realization, you know, that people, people uh, often think that leaders are arrogant and that they're doing things just for their own respect or covered or, you know, and that's not really the motivator. The motivator is to get done what we need to get done. And unfortunately, sometimes you just, you need to kind of push things forward. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it's not someone, you know, there's a beautiful Torah once someone once shared with me that, you know, they talked about there are four people that never sinned. Yishai, Benyamin, you know, four people never sinned. But they're not the real main characters of Tanakh. You know, Yosef is the main character of Tanakh. And Dove is, right? If, if you don't want to sit, you want to go sit in a corner and say, oh, it's beautiful. And you want to go sit and learn a corner, it's beautiful. But, but when you go out there and you try and lead the Jewish people, you're going to sit. Moshe sinned. David sinned. You know, and therefore people, you know, if they, oh, he's arrogant. He's, the, you know, it's just, um, it, it, it's hard for them. And then the, I, the irony is once you're successful, everyone just assumes it kind of happened by itself. It's like, oh yeah, we always knew that, you know. So it's, it, it's, it's difficult. You know, for me, the solace is that um, I do what I do for God. You know, I do what I do for God. I really, I really mean that, um, you know, everything, my career path, the things I'm doing, these 3 million Jews, it's all, it's basically what I feel he's asked me to do. And when you're working for the big man, so the other stuff doesn't get to you quite as much. Yeah. I, I think that there's so much power there in 
being able to say that if it's ultimately not about yourself, there's really not that much that's holding you back. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was really doing a, a deep dive into your Twitter. Um, and one of the things that was there, it was so interesting. I found a quote, um, and I'm really curious to hear you expound on it a little bit more. The quote, it was from, it was from Norman Cousins. And the quote read, the tragedy of life isn't death, but what we let die inside of us while we live. I found that was so interesting. I'm curious to hear you expound on that a little bit. Yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's, you know, I, I've often said that, you know, a person is born and they die. That's the only two things in life you're guaranteed. And you're running this mad dash between where you're trying to get done as much as you can get done until the clock runs out. And I think that, you know, one of the, the, the tragic things is, you know, when you get to the end of it and you look back, you're like, oh, I should have, could have, would have. Right. And, you know, when you leave some gas in the tank, like, you know, I just I think it's a mistake. So I, I, I you know, I feel very strongly that a person you know, every day has to go through, figure out the challenges. What can I fix? What can I do? How can I be better? And this is in life and in business, like this is your career and also your family. You know, if you're not growing as a person then, you know, you're going backwards. So yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, it's funny. I don't even remember when I posted that, but, uh, but yeah, I, it, it speaks very much to my beliefs. Okay. So first of all, I want to thank you again so much for joining us. This was really incredible. Um, I like to end all of the interviews with the same question, put very simply, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to lead? Wow. That's a deep question. <laughs> Look, for me, I'm sure I'll give the most boring answer out of anyone because I just, uh, you know, just my perspective. I think it means a lead is trying to figure out what God wants and getting it done. I, I don't think it's about leading for leadership's sake. I don't think, it, you know, there, there are many times in life where I have, you know, had, had serious issues with the Almighty where he gave me certain talents that put me in a certain place to do certain things that were very difficult. Um, but I know he did out of love. I know that he loves me. I know that he loves everyone on, on, in the world. So I think what it means to lead is it for me as, as a Jew is, is he put me down here. He wants me to accomplish some things. He wants me to get things done. It's just, it's just about being his servant. You know, the greatest compliment that Moshe Rabbeinu got was being the servant of God. So for me, it's about being a servant. It's not so much about being a leader as much as figuring out what my master wants and, and getting it done. And uh, hopefully, like we said, getting to the finish line where we, we've done more good than bad in the world. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. To stay up to date, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Anatomy of a Jewish Leader. And if you're really feeling generous, leave us a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. Uh, if you have inquiries or if you'd be interested in sponsoring a podcast, you can reach out at aoajlpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.